There's something amazing about the Christmas narrative in both Luke and Matthew. Um, and it's something that I talk about every Advent season. I'm sure many, many pastors, most pastors, all pastors do. And that's the fact that every character in the story seems to be some degree of um, this regular, obscure, run-of-the-mill nobody. The birth of uh, the Lord of all lords was, wasn't announced to priests or to kings. It was announced to shepherds, um, sleepy shepherds and patient widows like Anna, uh, to faithful servants like Zechariah and Elizabeth, and wandering mystics like the Magi to a lowly carpenter and his peasant teenaged bride-to-be. That's who Jesus came and made himself known to as he arrived. We're introduced to hero after hero, and each one of these heroes is relatable to us to some degree. These are no super people. These are regular people doing regular things, uh, exhibiting regular, well, maybe not regular, maybe irregular faith. But they too are anonymous nobodies. And I'm sorry to suggest that you are anonymous nobodies. Here in Clyde, you are somebody. But as we know, the realm of Clyde, the kingdom of Clyde, as Gordon used to say, isn't that big. So in the cosmic sense, each one of us is not much of anything. But you're still special and wonderful. Moving on. Invitations to the arrival of humanity's salvation were not handed out freely. There are very few handed out. And those who were invited to witness Jesus' arrival were a bunch of political, spiritual, and social nobodies. Uh, outsiders. They are a bunch of misfits, forever joined together by the God who bursts into history to redeem those who respond to him in faith. That's the first amazing thing about the Christmas story, just how many heroes there are and how normal those heroes are. Now they're just regular people. But the other amazing thing about the story is how few villains there are, at least at first. For the sheer number of heroes in this story, there's only really one villain, and that is Herod. It's surprising that there's only one antagonist. He is undoubtedly, however, a very big villain. He is not a nice guy. In fact, he is so afraid of Jesus as a threat to his throne that, as you know, he ends up committing infanticide, genocide, in his fanatical desire to crush any threat to his authority and his power. So that's a bad guy in any situation. That's a bad person. And it's in fleeing Herod that Joseph, Mary, and little baby Jesus become refugees to Egypt. That's why they end up in in Egypt. So Herod is a big villain. He's the only villain, but he's uh, more than enough. His presence looms large in Matthew 2. So one villain, obviously a bad guy. But I want us to imagine something. Imagine that upon summoning the Magi to his palace chambers and asking, hey, where is this newborn king of the Jews to be born? which Herod does in the story. And he says, let me know because I want to go and worship him. Actually, he wants to kill him. But imagine if if Herod summons the Magi into his chambers and asks for the location so that he can, in fact, go and worship the newborn king of the Jews. Imagine that he does see that Jesus doesn't want to set up a throne to su- supplant his throne. He wants to set up a throne in our hearts to, to rule each of us individually and establish a new kingdom beyond the empire of Rome. Imagine that Herod understood that and was converted and transformed by that baby. That's a tough thing to imagine. What if this powerful villain had instead become a powerful ally? He would have been the opposite of the shepherds and widows and pregnant teenagers and other outsiders in the story because he would have been this powerful political insider who who welcomes Jesus. Kind of the opposite of, of most of our heroes. He would have been humbling himself so that Jesus could be glorified, whereas Everyone else in the story is already humble and they're, they're drawn to praise because they're so 
such lowly figures drawn into a great and amazing story. Herod would have been a different kind of hero. We're very familiar with stories of outsiders and underdogs becoming heroes, but it's not often that we find stories of villains setting aside their villainy in order to join the good guys. That is a rare thing. Well, as we move into the final weekend of our Advent miniseries, we have one more Christmas movie to look at. My friends in Ontario are convinced that it's going to be Elf. I've mentioned Elf several times because it's the best. It's the best one. There's nothing. The Grinch is close, maybe equal, but no, Elf's the best one. We watched it as a family the other night. It's hilarious. It's great. Um, But it's not Elf today, even though Elf shares many of the same traits that I've been mentioning, as in there's a lonely outsider who longs to become an insider. Um, That's the story of Buddy the Elf. He's a human raised by elves, and he wants to learn about his human life. So he's an outsider who longs to become an insider. And in both, there's this antagonizing figure, uh, Buddy the Elf's birth father, Walter Hobbs, at first doesn't want anything to do with him. Um, But this antagonist is eventually won over and becomes an ally. So I could have done Elf. By the way, did you watch Elf yet, Sharon? That was your homework. You didn't want... No, you didn't do your homework. Um, oh, yeah, I was supposed to lend it to you. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right, I didn't do my homework. I'm sure it's on TV somewhere. Elf would have worked, but we're not watching a clip from Elf this morning. We're going to watch a Christmas classic that it took me much longer to warm up to. In fact, the first time I watched this movie, I hated it. I thought it was cheesy and cloying and cliche and poorly written, which sounds like a Chris Lance sermon. <laughs> cheesy, cloying, yeah, sounds like me. Um, but now I have a real soft spot for the fourth movie in our Advent miniseries, and that is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the 1964 stop-motion masterpiece. I hated this movie at first. I thought it was so cheesy, so poorly done, but I actually really kind of love it now. Um, the main reason I enjoy it is for the themes that I've mentioned already, themes which the filmmakers rely on heavily, uh, themes of outsiders and misfits banding together to prove their usefulness in unexpected ways to a society uh, that demeans and devalues them. That, that's a pretty powerful gospel theme, and it's throughout this movie. So we're going to watch two different four-minute clips. You get bonus footage today. I've been trying to keep it around around five minutes, my clips. Today it's eight, so there you go. You're welcome. Merry Christmas. And I chopped and spliced them from all over the movie and condensed them into one in a way that I hope makes sense. Is there anybody who's never seen Rudolph? Andrew's like ashamed to put his hand up. So um, the first clip introduces us to the various misfits in the story uh, and presents a major villain to us. So we're going to watch that, then I'll talk for a bit, then we'll watch the second clip. So here we go. Well, for the first year, the Donners did a pretty fair job of hiding Rudolph's uh, uh, nonconformity. Donner taught Rudolph all the ins and outs of being a reindeer, how to get food, how to fight off enemies, things like that. But most important, most important of all, he taught his son to beware of the abominable snow monster of the north. He's mean, he's nasty, and he hates everything to do with Christmas. Hey, what do you say we both be independent together, huh? You wouldn't mind my red nose? Not if you don't mind me being a dentist. It's a deal. 
We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. Now, these two didn't have any idea about what they were letting themselves in for. The world looked a lot more complicated and dangerous than it seemed when they were snug and warm at home. The Abominable, he must see your nose. Quick, douse the light. Like I said, the outside world is up to its ears in danger. Halt! Who goes there? Us, of course. Who'd you think? Oh, well, then that's okay. Okay? Who, may I ask, are you? We're Rudolph and Hermie and Yukon Cornelius, sir. Who are you? I'm the official sentry of the Island of Misfit Toys. A jack-in-the-box for a sentry? Yes, my name is... Don't tell me. Jack. No, Charlie. That's why I'm a misfit toy. My name is all wrong. No child wants to play with a Charlie in the box, so I had to come here. Where's here? finds a misfit toy, one that no little girl or boy loves. He brings it here to live in this island till someone wants it. He's holding court in his castle right now. So that's our merry band of misfits. Some are misfits for their alternative aspirations, like Hermie the toy maker, who longs to be a dentist, and everybody mistreats him and abuses him because of that. Some are misfits because of glaring physical deformities, like Rudolph and his glowing red nose, the most famous and most freakish reindeer of all. Um, And some are misfits because they don't align with society's prevailing values regarding status and wealth, like the playthings on the island of misfit toys. It's not, you can't have a Charlie in the box. Society doesn't value, apparently, Charlies. So you are cast away. 
And then there's Yukon Cornelius, who we met here. He's not really an outcast or a misfit. He's just the best part of the movie, so I had to include him. He's hilarious. All of these misfits align nicely with the outsiders and anonymous nobodies and societal rejects found in the Christmas story, as mentioned earlier. Um, They're very similar in a lot of ways. But the question remains, will they ever be welcomed and accepted again? Will they find their purpose and their value? Find out in the second action-packed thrill ride of a clip from 1964's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The cave of the abominable snow monster. Dentist, you take it from here. We're saved. Let's get out of here. I'll light the way. Why blast your hairy bumble hide? Don't let this big blowhard scare you anymore. Just walk right past him. I tell you. You're looking at a mighty humble bumble. So they make it back, and when everybody hears their story, they start to realize maybe they were a little hard on the misfits. Maybe misfits have a place too. Open up! Isn't a fit night out for man or beast? Here's the man. And here's the beast. Now, calm down. Calm down. I reformed this bumble. He wants a job. Looky what he can do. And he doesn't even need a stepladder. Well, it's Christmas Eve, but... Looks like we're forgotten again. Rudolph promised we'd go this time. Oh, guess the storm was too much for them. Might just as well go to bed and start dreaming about next year. I haven't any dreams left to dream. We'll never get off this island. Never. Wait a minute. What's that? Is it... Is it... It sure is. It's Santa. And look, Rudolph is leading the way. You can see his nose from here. Well, let's be on our way. Ready, Rudolph? Ready, Santa. Okay, Rudolph. Full power. Um, they're pretty pathetic, those toys. <laughs> I have no dreams left. So, hooray, redemption for everyone. The misfits are appreciated for being unique. Hooray, they become heroes. It's a Christmas miracle for the ages. There are three intersecting aspects to our December miniseries. A, Advent, B, Christmas movies, and C, Acts. And I've only ever really talked about Christmas movies and the Christmas story. Outsiders become insiders because of how they are made unique by their makers and how they faithfully use their uniqueness to help others. Anonymous nobodies and unwanted castaways become heroes. It's appealing to us because we see ourselves in Joseph and Simeon and Mary in the Christmas story, 
and maybe to a lesser degree, uh, the misfits like Hermie and Rudolph and Charlie in the box. We aren't the big shots, and we don't always fit in with society, but the God who came to us has a purpose for us nonetheless. It's very inspiring. However, the connection of that movie to the Christmas story isn't the biggest connection I want to make today. The bigger connection I want to make isn't found in the first two chapters of Luke or Matthew. It's actually found in chapter 9 and 10 of Acts, passages that once again mark enormous turning points in human history. Passages that I see reflected in the loneliness of the misfit toys and the rage of the bumble snow monster. Um, Passages that illustrate a God who can best be defined by what we celebrate on the fourth day of Advent, and that is love. A God so committed to love that he sent his son whom he loved to radiate love to all those who encountered him. A God who allows his son to succumb to hate in order to demonstrate the supreme victory of divine love. A God whose love spills over from Acts 9 and 10 and spills over in a way that we're still washing ourselves in today, uh, thousands of years later. In other words, when I watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I, rem- I am reminded of Saul's persecution of the church, his eventual transformation into Paul, and Peter's vision of Gentiles being accepted into the kingdom. Those are three enormous events in Acts. When I watch Rudolph, I am reminded of a God who welcomes and redeems and values and loves all people, all people no matter how broken or weird or devalued they are by society. It may seem like a stretch connecting Rudolph to all of this, but let me endeavor to explain. Last week, we discussed joy, specifically the joy that Stephen the Martyr experienced uh, despite his gruesome fate, even though he he met a, a terrible end. During that end, as his end came rapidly, he was filled with joy, in fact, beaming with joy. Joy transcends even pain and death. Well, Stephen's pain and death lit a fire under a particularly zealous anti-Christian Pharisee named Saul. Saul was like a shark. Once he got a whiff of Christian blood, he, he went into a frenzy and wanted only more blood. He ripped apart families. He sent men and women to their death for their professed love for who Saul perceived to be a crucified blasphemer. Anywhere he could find a Christian, he, he beat them and sent them back to Jerusalem in chains, and many of them ended up dying for their faith because of Saul. Saul's persecution was what turned otherwise normal, unassuming fellow Israelites into outsiders and misfits among the Jewish people. If you were a Christian, you were no longer one of the people, and you were treated as such. They were hunted and persecuted and crushed for seeing their place in society differently than the Jews around them. Hermie, he was merely sent on a quest with a friendly reindeer for being an outsider. Jerusalem Christians were chained and whipped. Rudolph was merely picked on and banned from those ridiculous reindeer games. That's the worst he experienced. Followers of Jesus were, you know, impaled and beheaded. All of the other Pharisees used to imprison, torture, and maim. They never let poor Christians live. It's not, it's not quite as catchy, but there's similarities there. Christians were the ultimate misfits in, the, in, in their world. They didn't fit in with their fellow Jews because they worshipped Jesus. And they didn't fit in with the Romans because they didn't worship Caesar. They were caught between. Nobody loved them. Nobody cared about them. Nobody valued them. Everybody hated them because of their faith. They were forced to band together like Rudolph and Hermie in a cold, dangerous world, possessing only their their light and, and not a glowing outward light, obviously. No Christians had red noses that are recorded by Josephus in scripture. Um, 
but a different kind of inner light fueled by the Holy Spirit and the teachings of their master. The soft, warm light of love, which propelled them to care for other devalued outcasts, like the sick and the diseased, like widows and orphans. They were filled with the light, and that light brought warmth to people around them. Guidance. Christ had changed their entire outlook, the entire outlook of those who chose to follow him. They no longer cared about power or prestige or profit. They cared about loving God and loving their neighbors, no matter who that neighbor happened to be. If it was somebody lower than them on the social standing, it didn't matter. They cared for them. If it was somebody higher than them who showed genuine repentance, they took care of them. It doesn't matter where they fit on society's ridiculous ladder. They cared for them, showed love to them. Love made them misfits to the world, but it made them perfect fits for the new kingdom established by their Savior. In fact, that love, combined with Saul's persecution, is what sent them out to the far reaches of the world in accordance with Jesus' commands in Acts 1. Philip, in particular, was instrumental in this. Philip was the one who brought the gospel to the Samaritans. Jesus has said, um, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's kind of the, the outward spheres. He was the one who brought it to the next sphere. He brought the gospel to the Samaritans. And then the next sphere out from, uh, from that, when he converted the Ethiopian eunuch, Ethiopians were considered the ends of the earth. And so Philip converted somebody at the ends of the earth. He, he took Jesus' command and obeyed it, fulfilled it. And so the kingdom continued to expand in number and in scope. It wasn't just a localized phenomenon for the Jews in Jerusalem. It exploded outward. God was showing that his love wasn't just restricted to one people group in one location, in one city, in one place. God was showing that his love was global. His message was global, just as he had originally planned. Because his love is global. It's not restricted just to the Jewish people. And through the church, that became obvious. His love went everywhere. His is a life open to all people, all people, any person. And that is powerfully demonstrated in the actions of Acts chapter 9 and 10. Remember when I got us to imagine if Herod, the villain, had actually sought out the newborn king of the Jews and truly desired to worship him and became an ally? That's hard to imagine, right? It's hard to imagine somebody like Herod becoming an ally. He's just too much of a villain. It sounds impossible, but it's not impossible. It didn't happen with Herod, but there's a figure similar to Herod Um, similar for his viciousness and his callous hatred of both Jesus and Jesus' followers. Another leader who viewed this so-called king as a threat to his own personal security and authority. And that's Saul. Saul, the same man who forced the church into misfit status, was just as much an enemy of God's people as Herod was. In fact, there was probably a fairly similar amount of blood on Herod's hands as there was on Saul's. Saul was guilty of shedding innocent blood in his zealotry, And he probably killed about as many people as Herod did when he committed genocide in Ramah. Probably about the same. They are enormous villains of God's people, at least at one point. Saul didn't remain an enemy for long. He saw the light, literally, and was transformed by it. The light made the darkness of Saul's heart abundantly clear. That's what happens when light shines. It makes the darkness obvious. The light offered hope and guidance for Saul. But most of all, the light would represent for Saul, soon to become Paul, the forgiving and gracious love of his Messiah, Jesus. That light was the presence of love manifest in Jesus. Paul was the ultimate outsider. 
because he did everything he could to make sure nobody else became an insider. He hunted them and crushed them when he found them. He's the ultimate outsider. But once he saw the light, he became more than just an insider. He became leader of the insiders, a misfit who happened to fit perfectly, is the story of Saul. Saul transforms into Paul, a process that we're still learning about as we continue to study Acts uh, after the new year. And in that transformation, I see the abominable snowman monster, or Bumble, as Yukon Cornelius calls him. Um, it's like when the Bumble puts the star on the tree. That's, that's what the conversion of Saul is like. First time we meet the Bumble is the same as the first time we meet Saul. They're both roaring and rampaging and spreading fear. That's what we saw in the first clip. Our first introduction to the Bumble is he's this monster rampaging and roaring around. Both enemies hated all that was good and pleasing and beloved by our heroes. The abominable snowman, as Leon the snowman tells us. Leon the I don't know why his name's Leon. But Leon the snowman tells us, oh, because it's Noel backwards. That's why I just realized. Anyway, <laughs> when we first meet the Bumble, we find out that he hates Christmas and does everything he can to destroy it. And that's like Saul. He hates, not Christmas, he hates Christians and does everything he can to destroy them. Both the Bumble and Saul imprisoned families and prepared to, to devour them. Both are, as one's name would suggest, truly abominable. But neither of them stay that way. Yukon Cornelius is like Ananias, as both can say, I've reformed this beast. Uh, that's what Yukon says when he drags the, the bumble in, into the room full of elves. I've reformed this beast. And that's what Ananias, through Jesus, did for Saul as well. Both Saul and the bumble find themselves rendered toothless. One by being blinded and knocked out by the light after meeting his savior. The other by being knocked out cold and literally being made toothless. Both find a reluctant sort of acceptance from those that they once hunted and harmed. And both need to demonstrate their repentant desire to change. One does it by preaching in synagogues and showing love and meeting with the apostles. The other by putting a star on a tree. Without the aid of a stepladder, it should be noted. And what is the thing that actually transforms these former monsters? What is the thing that gets them accepted by those they had once sought to destroy? Well, it's love. Of course it's love. Love experienced in a new and transformative way. Saul experiences the blinding love of Jesus and is transformed from an agent of hateful wrath to an agent of impassioned love. But the fullness of his, of his acceptance didn't come until he was loved by the community he had once hated. Then his transformation became complete. The bumble experiences the love that conquers rage and is never the same, I assume. I don't really know the rest of the story of the abominable snowman. I don't think there's a Rudolph part two in which that story is flushed out. But I assume even when his teeth grow back in, he doesn't start eating elves again. I, that would make for not a happy story. But he is accepted and loved, even by the elves and reindeer he once tried to swallow alive. And now he's ready for a life of service, lighting the top of every spruce tree he can find. It's beautiful. Even people who choose to be outsiders, even violent outsiders, those who hate the insiders, even people who choose to be outsiders are welcomed into the kingdom by Jesus Christ because of his love. Which brings us finally to Acts 10, the last major group of misfits. A group of misfits that even Peter, who knew Jesus' love and acceptance better than anyone, was reluctant to accept. Even Peter. The last major turning point that we reached in our study of Acts, was when God extended an invitation to and swung the kingdom gates wide open for the largest group of misfits on earth, and that is 
the Gentiles. We Gentiles, that's you and me, we we can still be classified as such. We Gentiles are truly like Charlie in the Box or the Jelly Shooting Water Pistol or the Ostrich Riding Cowboy and other messed up playthings on the island of Misfit Toys. We Gentiles are Misfit Toys. We are the, or we were, the ostracized people group, cast off to suffer our fate in isolation, away from the hope, peace, and joy of God's love. That was the fate of the Gentiles until Jesus arrived. Well, even when Jesus arrived, most of his followers believed that was still the fate of the Gentiles. It wasn't until Acts 10 that that, it becomes clear that anything that I call acceptable, you call acceptable. Before salvation was born in a manger, we non-Jews were purposeless, lonely, and eager for redemption, just like the, the toys on the island. But then a king arrived, a soaring lion, who took on the likeness of a humble servant rabbi. This king scours the world just like, what's his name? King Moonraker? I don't know why that's his name. I also don't know why he's a flying lion in the movie. I, I don't know. But our king, like that king, scours the world searching for misfits to welcome into his kingdom. In his kingdom, misfits like Cornelius in Acts 10 or misfits like Mary in Luke 1 are elevated to hero status for their faithful love of both God and neighbor. Each of us is a misfit toy. We don't quite work like we were intended to on this side of Shalom, but the peace that he brings fills in the gaps. We long to have the hope of purpose, to spread Christmas-like joy to those around us, to know the peace of being valued and finding a home. In Jesus, we have all of this, and we have it together. Like abominable monsters or zealous Pharisees, even the worst enemies can be transformed by this beautiful light of Jesus' love. We endure the worst that life can throw at us together, together as his body, under the banner of his victorious name, and no snowstorm of suffering can slow us down because we're knit together by his love. We have one another and we have him. His loving grace and forgiveness informs our treatment of other misfits and welcomes those misfits into our merry little band of misfits. The song that Hermie and Rudolph sing at the beginning of that one clip was, what's the matter with misfits? Well, what is the matter with misfits? Absolutely nothing. The kingdom is filled with them. In fact, the kingdom is for them. The kingdom is for people who know they don't fit in society and and want the fullness of hope, joy, peace, and love that only Jesus can offer. Once you accept that hope, joy, peace, and love, you realize just how much of a misfit Jesus was, but how much his kingdom makes sense, his kingdom of misfit toys like you and I. The world may not value us, but the king born in a manger does value us. His love makes misfits fit together perfectly. And as the light of his love glows in front of us like so many red noses, as we enter the world with his light shining ahead of us, we will spread that love to other misfits, even the abominable ones. Then, like Mary in the Christmas story, or like Paul in Acts, or like Rudolph in Rudolph, we'll go down in history and beyond into eternity. The love of the Christmas season has that kind of power. It turns misfits into his kids. That might sound cheesy or cloying or cliche, not to mention poorly written. It is, after all, Chris Lance's sermon. But some of the very best stuff is, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So Mary, 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 I don't know how he screwed up this line. So Merry Christmas, Clyde Christian Bible Church. It's an honor to be rooted in his love with a bunch of misfits like you. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you are a father to people who don't quite fit into society. And thank you that this life you called us to looks nothing like the world around us. It is not cold and dark as, as the world is. It's filled with light and love, a light and love that only you can bring, Jesus. And so I pray that we would be a people who shine your light forward to welcome other misfits into this island of misfit toys that is the church. Thank you so much, Jesus, for the love that you demonstrated at every turn. You showed your love when you came to us. You showed your love when you taught and served us. You showed your love when you died for us. And you showed your love when you rose again. And in in all of those things, we are the beneficiaries of that. That love transforms us uh, from misfits into something that fits perfectly in your kingdom. And we thank you for that and praise you for that. Thank you for the love of Christmas. Uh, for the love of Advent, for the love of Acts, and for the love of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, transformative love that turns outsiders into insiders. Praise your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.